You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This position was in the edge of the woods with considerable underbrush. In a few minutes, the Johnnies could be seen marching in columns of fours to our left. As soon as they came opposite each company of our regiment, our men commenced firing, the rebels being within easy range. They made no reply until far enough to the left to outflank us when they came to a front and the fun began. I did not realize the sense of danger until a man named Robinette in Company G, a few feet to my right, fell dead with a bullet through his brain. For I had for some time been looking for bees, not knowing, being a green soldier, that the buzzing and zips were made by bullets. Lieutenant Samuel T. Carrico, 61st Illinois Infantry Just in front was a ridge, a peach orchard, and the Federal encampment. We moved forward at double quick, passed through the encampment, down the slope on the north side of the ridge to a creek. Here a line of infantry rose up and poured such a destructive volley into our ranks that we recoiled and fell back to the first ravine. Here we rallied. We leaped forward with a deafening cheer, but firing from the battery and a line of infantry just in rear of the battery was so heavy that we again fell back with great loss, but soon reformed and we were ready for the third charge when the Louisiana Brigade was brought up to our support. Another charge was ordered and we moved forward over the dead and wounded, this time to reach the goal that had cost the lives of so many of our best men. But the struggle was not yet over for the battery, as the boys in blue fired some of the guns when we were within ten feet of their muzzles. Here we had a hand-to-hand contest over the guns, but we were triumphant, and this fine battery was ours. Private James Wheeler, 23rd Tennessee Infantry Welcome to episode 116 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, the stubborn resistance of Sherman's division, the 5th Division, on the Union right had finally drawn down on him more than half of the force in the first three Confederate attack waves. But by 10 a.m., the pressure was finally becoming too much, and after two hours of fighting, Hildebrand's brigade was in trouble. As the Confederate pressure became too severe, Hildebrand's brigade, on Sherman's left, didn't collapse suddenly, but rather crumbled slowly. Soldiers started to trickle to the rear by ones and twos, by larger groups, then by whole companies, as the rebels relentlessly pressed forward. Hildebrand's line started to unravel on the left, with what remained of the 53rd Ohio, 
and the disintegration progressed along the brigade's front, with the 57th Ohio retreating, until finally the collapse reached the 77th Ohio on the brigade's right, and it too gave way and fell back. As Hildebrand's brigade slowly unraveled and fell back, Sherman realized that he couldn't hold his position near Shiloh Church any longer, and he ordered his other two brigades, led by Buckland and McDowell, to pull back to the line of the Hamburg-Purdy Road, 600 yards in rear of their present position. As Sherman's men pulled back, Wright's brigade matched their withdrawal. Wright's brigade, as y'all will recall, were those reinforcements who had come up earlier from McClernand's division. As the Federals withdrew, the Confederates continued to press forward. A soldier of the 70th Ohio in Buckland's brigade later recalled, quote, The rebels raised their cornbread yelp and, making a desperate charge, captured our camp, taking full possession of our tents, our blankets, knapsacks, and all of our love letters, end quote. As the men of the 13th Tennessee paused in their advance to rummage through the abandoned federal tents, Colonel Alfred Vaughn saw a dead Yankee officer with a large dog standing guard over his body. Vaughn later remembered how the faithful animal growled and refused to let the rebel soldiers approach his dead master. During the 600-yard withdrawal to the line of the Hamburg-Purdy Road, McDowell's brigade went astray, so Sherman's only remaining organized unit was Buckland's brigade, although it was strengthened by those who had rallied from Hildebrand's regiments. Fortunately for Sherman, the Confederate pursuit wasn't pressed all that vigorously, partially because the rebels from different formations were jumbled together confusingly after their headlong advance, and partially because many of the Southerners now paused to ransack the captured Yankee camps. As Sherman's men sorted themselves out along the new defensive line on the Hamburg-Purdy Road, moving up into position on their left were the two remaining brigades of McClernand's division. McClernand's men, the 1st Division, had seen heavy fighting at Fort Donelson seven weeks before, so they were veteran troops, and with the exception of Wright's already battered command, they were fresh and rested. As before, Wright's brigade stood immediately next to Sherman's line, just west of the crossroads of the Corinth Road and Hamburg-Purdy Road. McClernand's other two brigades, led by C.C. March and Abram Hare, extended the line about a thousand yards due east. About 200 or 300 yards farther east, past McClernand's left flank, was where the troops of W.H.L. Wallace's division, the 2nd Division, were taking position. There, over on the Union left, as you guys will remember, Wallace's men, along with the remnants of Prentice's command, and also Hurlbut's 4th Division, were forming a new defensive line a short distance behind Prentice's captured camps. And although it's been a few episodes since he's made an appearance, it was probably while Sherman's and McClernand's men were taking up their positions along the line of the Hamburg-Purdy Road that Ulysses S. Grant arrived on that part of the battlefield to survey the situation. And so it's at this point that Grant will re-enter our story. By the time Grant arrived on the battlefield, the Confederates had completed their capture of all six front-line Union Brigade camps. But as he had at Belmont and Fort Donelson, here at Shiloh, Ulysses S. Grant met crisis and potential disaster with calmness and determination. 
First, however, Grant had to actually get to the battlefield at Shiloh. As at Fort Donelson, the Confederates struck while he wasn't with his army. Grant had left the day-to-day running of the camps in the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing to his most trusted subordinate, Sherman, while he had made his headquarters some eight miles downriver at the town of Savannah, which was situated on the east bank of the Tennessee. Earlier on, C.F. Smith had set up his headquarters at the Cherry Mansion in Savannah, and then when Grant resumed command of the army, he also set up shop there. The town not only provided a more comfortable setting than the rough camps at Pittsburgh Landing, but being situated on the east side of the river, Savannah also made a handier spot from which Grant could await the arrival of Buell's army. Actually, Buell's lead division, commanded by William Bull Nelson, had completed its march from Nashville and arrived at the outskirts of Savannah the night before. On Sunday morning, April 6th, Grant was to confer with Buell himself, who had also arrived the night before. But Grant and Buell's meeting would have to wait. Sometime between 7 and 7.30 that morning, Grant and his staff had sat down for breakfast at the Cherry Mansion when Private Edward N. Trembley, a headquarters orderly, came in and reported the sound of artillery coming from the direction of Pittsburgh Landing. Grant left his breakfast unfinished and went outside to the porch, where he heard the heavy firing. Gentlemen, he said, the ball is in motion. Let's be off. Within 15 minutes, the pint-sized steamship that Grant referred to as his flagship, the Tigress, had cast off, and her paddle wheels were pushing her southward against the current of the rain-swollen Tennessee. Before departing Savannah, Grant sent orders to Bull Nelson to march his division down the east bank of the Tennessee to a spot opposite Pittsburgh Landing. And this is just a footnote, but Nelson was nicknamed Bull because he stood six foot two inches tall and weighed over 300 pounds. Yep, he was a big un. But back to Grant. The Tigress headed up the Tennessee as fast as she could, but paused three and a half miles above Savannah at Crump's Landing, and there, Grant, without disembarking, conferred with 3rd Division Commander Lew Wallace. Lew Wallace didn't know any more than Grant did about the sound of battle coming from the south, and Grant ordered him to hold his division ready to march at once on receipt of further orders. The commander of the Army of the Tennessee then ordered the Tigers back out into the channel again to steam the remaining four or so miles to Pittsburgh Landing. On reaching the landing at perhaps 9 a.m. or a bit earlier, Grant and his staff found all was confusion as a mass of wounded men, panicked teamsters, and rattled stragglers swarmed around the bluff. Eyewitnesses conservatively placed the number at 3,000 at the time of Grant's arrival, but it would get much worse. Grant had to be assisted onto his horse, and a crutch was strapped to his saddle so that it would be handy if he dismounted. You see, just the day before, as he was at this same spot, but descending the muddy road down the bluff, his horse had slipped and fell heavily on Grant's leg, badly injuring his foot and ankle. For the next few days, Grant could do no more than hobble about, and that only with the aid of the crutch. As Grant and his staff ascended the bluff, the tremendous roar of battle hit their ears for the first time in its full fury. Grant first tried to bring some order to the area around the landing itself. The 15th and 16th Iowa were there and were ordered to form a line to intercept stragglers. 
and then Grant, remembering how quickly units at Fort Donelson had started to run low on ammunition, here ordered that an ordnance train be organized to take ammo to the firing line. Grant himself then set off, heading toward the sound of battle. About a half mile up the Corinth Road, Grant encountered W.H.L. Wallace, who briefed him as best he could on the general situation. At that point, Grant sent an officer back to take the Tigris back to Crump's Landing, with orders for Lew Wallace to march his division to the battlefield at once, and he also sent a messenger to find Bull Nelson across the river and direct him to hurry his march down the east bank. At the moment, Grant's only reserve was the two regiments at Pittsburgh Landing, the 15th and 16th Iowa, but he believed that he had two divisions, Lew Wallace's and Bull Nelson's, on their way to the battlefield. Having made those arrangements, Grant then rode his army's lines, and at perhaps 10 o'clock he came to the position Sherman and McClernand had taken up flanking the crossroads of the Corinth and Hamburg-Purdy roads and extending to the east. One of Grant's staff officers observed that Sherman looked as if he had been doing, quote, hard and earnest work, end quote. Grant was impressed with the stubborn stand Sherman's men had made before falling back, but confided to Sherman that things appeared to be a bit shaky over on the left where Prentice's division had gone to pieces. After that brief conference, Grant headed off to continue his inspection of the lines and confer with his other division commanders. Such was his trust in his principal subordinate that Grant later wrote in his memoirs, quote, I never deemed it important to stay long with Sherman. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The stubborn stand by Sherman and the men of the 5th Division around Shiloh Church had not only stalled the rebel advance and bought time, it had, as we mentioned before, also drawn a disproportionate amount of Confederate strength to that sector of the battlefield and away from the vulnerable Federal left, where the remnants of Prentice's shattered command 
were rallying and establishing a new defensive line, flanked by Hurlbut's and W.H. Wallace's divisions. P.G.T. Beauregard, who was in the rear of Albert Sidney Johnston's army, directing Confederate units into the battle, was consistently aiming them toward the sound of the fiercest combat, and that had meant the area around Shiloh Church. As you guys will recall, Sidney Johnston had also dispatched troops to that sector after the units, under his immediate oversight, had overrun Prentice's camps, since Johnston mistakenly believed at that time that he had Grant's army trapped and needed only to crush the stubborn resistance around Shiloh Church to complete the Confederate victory. So the result of Sherman's stubborn stand was that the bulk of the rebel army was aimed squarely along the axis of the Corinth Road, bearing down on Sherman and McClernand, whose defensive line was centered on the crossroads of the Corinth and Hamburg-Purdy roads. It was perhaps 11 a.m. when the Confederate juggernaut bore down in earnest once again, hitting the Yankees of the 5th and 1st Divisions. But thanks to Jordan's faulty pre-battle attack orders, which arranged the Confederate Corps in successive lines, the rebels driving toward Sherman's and McClernand's position had little coordination between units and no overall commander on this part of the battlefield. The mass of Confederate formations was really just a collection of brigades from three different corps, the units driving forward led by the various brigade commanders, who were either following the last orders they received from their own chains of command or were simply acting on their own initiative. I know we keep harping on Jordan's faulty pre-battle attack orders, but we said that his orders would inevitably lead to the Confederate Corps becoming all jumbled up during the battle, and that's exactly what's happened, and it made it incredibly difficult for the rebels to manage the coordination of force that was required for a knockout blow on Grant's army. The renewed Confederate attack struck Marsh's brigade of McClernand's division first. The Confederates struck Marsh's four Illinois regiments with 11 regiments or battalions. Sterling Wood's oversized brigade of Arkansans, Alabamians, Tennesseans, and Mississippians advanced alongside R.G. Shaver's Arkansas Brigade, and together they pressed home their attack on Marsh's Yankees. In front of Marsh's line lay open woodlands, but on the left his line touched upon a large cleared field known as Review Field. From a distance, Marsh's men were uncertain of the identity of the troops advancing toward them between the trees and across the field. Sherman's right flank brigade, McDowell's, was missing, or these might be other Federal soldiers left behind in a previous retreat and now attempting to get back to the Union lines. Uncertain, Marsh waited and didn't give the order to open fire on the advancing troops. Some of the tensely waiting Federal soldiers became convinced the unknown men marching toward them were Confederates, and they opened fire without orders, but officers shouted for them to cease fire, and the shooting stopped. Finally, Major Frederick A. Barlston of the 20th Illinois galloped forward to find out the identity of the mystery troops. He passed out of sight down into a depression in front of Marsh's line. A smattering of shots rang out, and moments later the Major reappeared, his horse at a dead run, his arms covered with blood, shouting, Rebels! Rebels! The Rebels themselves were not far behind the wounded Barlston. As they emerged from the low ground and back into the sights of Marsh's soldiers, both sides loosed killing volleys at one another. 
Every man fired as fast as he was able, and the twenty or thirty seconds it took to reload seemed an eternity. The contest grew even more intense as more Confederate regiments piled in. The opposing battle lines continued to fire with frenzied speed, and plenty of the rounds were finding targets. Years later, one of Marsh's men, recalling those few minutes of ferocious combat, remembered the sound of, quote, that peculiar chug when a bullet strikes a man. Marsh's outnumbered men were faring badly in the exchange of fire, partially because they were facing a larger number of rebels, but also because of the incorrect placement of their line. McClernand, a politician, not a professional soldier, had not made the best use of the terrain here, and his mistake gave the Confederates an additional advantage over Marsh's men. Amid the terrible hail of bullets, some of the Federals were being hit several times. In the 45th Illinois, a lieutenant named Balker was walking along the line of his Company B when a bullet passed through his cap and sent him sprawling. He tried crawling toward the rear, but was struck in the bum by another bullet. Struggling to his feet, he had begun to hobble away when a third bullet struck his shoulder. Somehow, still able to stand, Balker turned back toward the enemy and held up his sword in a gesture of defiance, at which point another bullet struck the blade of his upraised sword and a fragment of the round hit him in the cheek. Before the stunned Balker could lower the sword, a fifth bullet struck the hilt, severing two of his fingers. Lieutenant Balker's case is obviously extraordinary, but in the deadly fire that swept Marsh's position, the brigade's officers did suffer especially heavy casualties, and with Marsh reporting after the battle that he believed his brigade suffered most of its casualties within the space of five minutes, the rapid loss of leadership contributed to swift and disastrous results. The 48th Illinois lost its commander and second-in-command within moments of the start of the fight. With many of its rank-and-file soldiers also falling to the deadly rebel fire, the 48th began to fall back. Then, having been battered almost as savagely, the regiments on either side of it gave way. The 11th Illinois had lost its commander and second-in-command, as well as a third of its men. Soon, Marsh's entire brigade was in headlong retreat. To the right of Marsh's position, Wright's brigade broke almost simultaneously, and for much the same reasons. It had also been positioned poorly, and that disadvantage, coupled to heavy casualties and the loss of key leaders, including Wright himself, was too much, and under pressure of Confederate advance, the brigade's line crumpled. With Marsh's and Wright's brigades fleeing to the rear, neither Hare, on the far left of McClernand's line, nor the remnants of Buckland's and Hildebrand's brigades to the right of McClernand, could hope to maintain their positions, and they quickly joined the rapid and disorderly retreat northward. As the rebels of Wood's brigade set off in pursuit of Marsh's skedaddling Yankees, they came under fire from a unit drawn up just to the rear of Marsh's recently vacated position. This fire came from the regiments, three from Illinois and one from Indiana, of the brigade of James C. Veach. Veach's brigade was part of Hurlbut's 4th Division, when Sherman had notified Hurlbut that the enemy was attacking in force that morning, Hurlbut's response was to dispatch Beach's men at once with orders to support Sherman. By the time Beach had marched over to that part of the battlefield, though, the Confederates were rapidly pressing forward, so he had positioned his men behind Marsh's line. 
Many of Veatch's troops were veterans of Fort Donelson, and they would need to call on every ounce of that experience as here at Shiloh. McClernand's line rapidly broke apart, and the charging rebels swarmed forward. With Sherman's and McClernand's men hightailing it for the rear, both of Veatch's flanks were in the air, that is, unsupported, and as the rebel attack rolled forward, they almost immediately threatened to sweep around Veatch's flanks and encircle the lone Federal brigade. Veatch's men gave a good account of themselves, but the threat of encirclement and the overwhelming volume of Confederate fire meant their stand was a short one. The 15th Illinois was the first to begin the withdrawal, with its colonel, his second-in-command, and eight of the regiment's ten captains dead or wounded. The rest of Veatch's hard-pressed brigade wasn't far behind the 15th Illinois, as they retreated on orders from the surviving officers. By this time, it was probably around 11.30, and nothing remained of the line Sherman and McClernand had formed on either side the crossroads of the Corinth and Hamburg-Purdy roads. The 1st and 5th Divisions, now badly disorganized, were retreating northward, some of the units pausing every so often to exchange fire with the pursuing rebels before continuing their retreat, but other units withdrawing in complete disorder. The Federals retreated through the camps of McClernand's brigades before reaching the vicinity of a large clearing known as Jones Field. There, about half a mile north of the crossroads, they began to rally and regroup. The Confederates around the crossroads and among McClernand's camps were also regrouping. The fighting to break Wright's and Marsh's fronts had been some of the most intense of the battle so far, and the rebels' casualties had been only somewhat less severe than those of the outnumbered Yankees. In addition, the attack through wooded terrain had broken up formations, and with brigades and parts of brigades from several different corps now thoroughly intermingled, it would take time to sort them out. Adding to the confusion, key leaders had gone down, just as they had among the Union formations. Meanwhile, just as had already happened with every federal encampment that was overrun, many of the rank-and-file Southern soldiers now broke away to plunder McClernand's abandoned camps. At any rate, all of this is to say that the seemingly unstoppable Confederate advance in this sector lost its momentum, and as a result, a lull now settled over the western end of the battlefield. But from the east, the sound of heavy firing could be heard. It could only mean that the cobbled-together Union line of Prentice's remnant and Hurlbut's and W.H. Wallace's divisions were fiercely resisting the renewed Confederate advance in that sector. But if the rebels were successful in breaking that line, then there was still the possibility that Sherman and McClernand would be cut off and trapped, almost, kind of, exactly as Sidney Johnston had envisioned when he planned the battle. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, Bloody April, by Wiley Sword. So, after ranting a bit about that book blurb and our last recommendation, this time I'll simply commend Wiley Sword's classic account of the Battle of Shiloh to your attention and leave it at that. You can find a list of all our book recommendations going all the way back to episode number one, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org, and once you're there, just click at the top of the page where it says Book Recommendations. We have a couple of thank yous to give out for a few donations since the last show. 
Thank you to John R. from Australia and Carol H. from the UK. We remind you pretty often that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. Well, we wanted to let you know that Spiritwood Music has a cool new website that you can check out, and they're pretty excited about it. So head over to www.spiritwoodmusic.com and check it out. And then, those of you who actually listen to the bitter end of each episode, gritting your teeth as Tracy and I ramble on, well, now it's going to pay off for you, since you're going to know something that those faint hearts who have already hit stop are going to miss out on. And that's the announcement that instead of having to wait two weeks for the next episode, we're going to release episode 117 next weekend. Yes, that's right, boys and girls. Just like in the good old days of the podcast... Which was just a few months ago. Just like in the good old days of the podcast, we're going to release episodes on back-to-back weekends. So there you go. There you go. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again next time when we switch our focus back to the Union left and da-da-da, the fight for the hornet's nest. So that'll be next week. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.